You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. May you standing and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Ah, I see I got you. You're about, you're about to get this new habit. Revelation chapter 5, if you will, turn over there. We'll pick it up in verse 1. While you're finding your place, I um, just want to say thank you to all those who came out and served last night with the Harvest Festival. My goodness, we had a lot of people come through this campus last night, got to meet a lot of people, uh, had a lot of good conversations about, well, where they stand with Christ, and uh, just appreciate your willingness to do the hard work. Um, I know that uh, there's a whole lot going on the rest of the weekend, and uh, I know you're probably a little tired from last night, but I really appreciate all the hard work. Let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, we are overwhelmed with what we have in front of us this morning in your word. Father, we know that your word is true and perfect in every way. We know that what we read here is an eyewitness account of what John saw in your throne room. So Father, this is not a fable. This is not just some fancy words of some story that John came up with. Father, we have in front of us your inspired word through the hand of John, by the Holy Spirit. And Father, you gave us this vision and last week's vision for a very particular reason. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see that this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you, Father, for coming where we were, seeking us out while we were lost. Thank you for redeeming us and ransom, paying the ransom that we could not pay. And Father, thank you that you have never left our side, not even a single moment. We love you. We thank you for all that you've given us and all that you do. But Father, we 
We love you and worship you because of who you are. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. There was a British philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. He was a very intelligent guy, and, and back in the 60s, and I think he died in 1970, if I have my date right. I, during that period of time, there was a lot of debate and discussion about the reality of the world and the universe and where it all came from. And he was one of those who had decided that there was nothing beyond this world. In other words, he was an atheist. And he was a very vocal atheist. Uh, what we would say is a very loud atheist. And he wrote a book that still has influence in a lot of circles today. The book that he wrote, he wrote many books, but this one particular book, Why I, Why I Am Not a Christian. And this book still influences a lot of folks today. And of course, his argument was, is that all we have, all we all we can tangibly see is all that there is. There is no God. There is no creator. There is nothing beyond the tangible world. So one day there was a um, BBC um, television host that wanted to do an interview with him. This is in 1970. I think he died in 1970, so this would have been brought before that. And, and of course, by this time, Bertrand Russell's a rather old, older gentleman near the end of his life. And this particular interviewer asked a question, and I think it's a very, very important question, because if you take the position that there is no God, and you take the position that there's nothing in this life except for what we see, you need to understand that there are implications that come with that worldview. So if you make the decision that all that you have and all that there is is this life, then that's going to influence everything that you see and how you approach the world and how you make choices about life. So Bertrand Russell, in this interview with the BBC, was asked this question. The question was, is what do you hang on to with death so close? That's an important question. As a matter of fact, how you answer that question, well, says a lot about what you actually believe. Isn't it interesting that as we get closer to the end of our life, we begin to think more about the end of our life? So I would ask you the same question this BBC interviewer asked Bertrand Russell, who is a philosopher and an atheist. As you're coming to the end of your life, Mr. Russell, what, what is it that you're hanging on to? What is it that you hope for? What is it that, well, the question is, is what's going to happen after you die? I want you to hear what this philosopher, atheist, how he responded. He said, quote, I have nothing to hang on to but grim, unyielding despair. I appreciate the honesty. Because you see, the reality is, is if you separate yourself from the creator, if you made the decision the creator either A, doesn't matter, or B, doesn't exist, the only path left for you to walk is grim, unyielding despair. Amen? If you separate yourself from the very one who can give you purpose, meaning, and yes, fullness of life after death, the, the way you answer these questions, these big life questions, why am I here? What happens when I die? What is my purpose? How did all of this come to be? There's really two categories that you can answer those questions. Either on the one side, it all became because of an accident and over billions of years, or there is some force, however you label that, some force behind all that we see. And how you answer those questions 
sets you on a path of either despair or hope. The fact is, is that every one of us were created by God, and, and, and inside of our heart, inside of our being, there is this unending desire to find out the, not only the answers to these questions, but to, to find hope. It's, it's incredible that some of the journeys that I've got to walk with on, that some of you've gone through, some of the hardship that you've been through, it's always just blown me away that in some of the circumstances that you found yourself that you still had hope. Because you were in some very desperate, hopeless situations from the world's perspective. The suffering that we see in the world, the, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, there's something in us that cries out for all that to be made right. Now, a lot of people define that a lot of different ways. For, for Bertrand Russell and for those who take a position of atheism that says there is no God, their idea is, is that there must be justice in the world, that there, there, these people who are hungry must be fed, and, and we must fix all the social problems because, quite frankly, the only utopia that they're ever going to be able to find is here on this earth because there is nothing beyond this life. But what's interesting to me is that inside every human being, there's a desire for justice. There's a desire for the wrongs to be made right. There's a desire for someone to fix the mess. And no matter if you're an atheist or you believe in God, we share that because we're human beings. Bertrand Russell, whether he would have admitted it or not, would have probably had to agree that the world is unjust. In the seven letters that we looked at, I told you that I would come back to this. In all seven of those letters, Jesus says something to those churches. He says it to all seven churches, but he gives a little bit of a different promise to each of those seven churches. And the way he says it is, to those who conquer, to the one who overcomes, I promise you this. And I told you that when we walk through those letters, I would come back to it. Well, I'm going to come back to it today. So to the church at Ephesus, he says, church at Ephesus, if you overcome, I'm going to grant to you to eat from the tree of life. To the church at Smyrna, he says, if you will overcome, if you will conquer, if you will endure, you will not be hurt by the second death. Pergamum, he says, if you will overcome, I will give you hidden manna and I will give you a brand new name. Church at Thyatira, if you will overcome, if you will endure, I'll give you authority over nations. Church at Sardis, if you will overcome, I'll give you white garments, and I will promise to never remove your name from the book of life. The church at Philippi, the Philippians, he says, I'm sorry, Philadelphia, he says, make them a pillar. If you'll conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God in Laodicea. He says, if you will overcome, you will come and sit with me. You will come and sit with me on the throne, and we will reign together. So in all of these churches, Jesus says to all of them, all seven of them, if they will overcome, if they will conquer, Jesus will fulfill a promise to them. Now, all of these promises that Jesus made has their culmination or fulfillment in what we're going to see in this upper room, in this throne room of God. In this place where John is being able to see all that plays out, we're going to find that our hope is anchored right here in this room. <coughs> we're going to find that all the promises of God are going to be fulfilled, and it's in this throne room that John recognizes that all the promises that he heard as a child through the Old Testament, all the promises that he heard Jesus proclaim, all the promises that he heard Jesus talk about after Jesus resurrected and appeared to the disciples, they're all connected to what we see in this upper room. 
You know, anytime you go on a long trip, you go on a vacation, you saved up your money and you've got the brochures, you've been looking at it on the internet, there's that anticipation of getting to your destination and enjoying the vacation. There's that anticipation of arriving and getting to, to experience all that this particular vacation place promises. <coughs> I'm going to do something unusual. <coughs> I'm going to ask for somebody to get me a cup of water. So, will somebody be willing to do that? Thank you, Ms. Seatress. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> I think there's someone who doesn't want me to share what I've got today. <clears throat> but we're going to do it anyway. <clears throat> the frog in the throat, I think it just arrived. So we're going to find in the supper room what John saw and why Jesus made sure that we would have a record, a record of this is because of hope. I think some of you are desperately looking for hope you may be looking for it in all the wrong places. So let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Miss Leitra says, okay, I'll take it. No, bring it on up. Bring it on up. I might, I might need it too. Thank you very much. Well, it's all right. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah, one of our servants in the church here. So John is in the spirit, and he is observing what is happening in the throne room of God. And last week we saw that the focus of what John saw was on God sitting on the throne, the 24 elders and the four beasts that are around that throne, and they are praising God and saying, holy, 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 without ceasing. And, and John describes what he sees, and we're, we're, we're hoping that John would tell us exactly what God looks like, but all he can do is tell us this bright light that is emanating from the throne, both a, a clear light, but also a light that is red. And we also have a, a rainbow. And all of that, we said, that talks about the righteousness and the purity and the power of God. Well, now, when John looks at the throne, he sees something else. He sees the hand of God. Now, he doesn't give us any other explanation. Last week, all that he said is that he saw light. But now we see what John sees, and he sees a hand. Now, I don't know if that arm is resting on a throne. I don't know, John didn't give us any description of what it looked like. It's not important. What is important is what God is holding in his hand. It's a scroll. And notice what happens. He says, at the right hand of him who was seated on the th throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So I need to give you a little bit of context on what John is seeing here. Because there's a historical connection to what John sees. So when John sees a scroll, he's not looking at like a book. Your book, your Bible or books that you have at home, they're bound on the back, glued together, put together, and you can flip the pages. So when we think about a scroll, let me describe what John sees. John sees a scroll just like what he would have used in his day. Scrolls were made of a plant called papyrus. And this papyrus stalk would be peeled, and all these layers would be peeled off, much like if you uh, break a stalk of celery, you can peel the little strings off. Just think of that much bigger. They would peel these little strips of the papyrus off, and they would lay them horizontally first. They would lay them horizontally. Then they would lay them vertically, and they would glue these layers together. So the side that you would ride on would be the horizontal layers, 
And rarely ever did anybody ride on the backside of this. Because on the backside, you have vertical layers, and it'd be very hard to write on this, so you just didn't have writing on the back. But notice what John sees. John sees a scroll, and it is written within and on the back. And he also says it has seven seals. So imagine this long piece of papyrus, this multiple sheets that have been put together, and it's been rolled up around a couple of sticks or rods, and then it has been sealed with seven seals. And oftentimes, kings would seal documents with wax, and they would often put the king's emblem into that wax. So what you have here is a scroll that is going to be unrolled, and inside of that scroll is something very, very important, which we'll see in just a minute, and with each seal that is broken, so imagine this, the first seal is broken and it's unrolled. You read what's in the scroll. Then you have to break another seal to roll it on out a little further and read the next part, and then the next part, and then the next part. So what is this scroll that God is holding in his right hand. I think it's nothing more than exactly what we're going to be reading in the book of Revelation because notice what we see in chapter 6, the seals being broken. We have here the plan of God. We have here the end of all time. We have within this scroll, well, God's plan for the end of the universe as we know it. Now let's read on. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, in John's day, if a scroll was delivered by the king to your particular province, only the person with king's authority would be able to open the scroll. Just any, any citizen just couldn't walk up and take the king's scroll and just begin to open it and read it. It had to be proclaimed by one of the king's agents, ambassadors, somebody who is authorized. So in this throne, there is this powerful angel that steps forward, and in the Greek language behind your English, it says that this is basically a very powerful voice, a voice that shatters, that will make your knees knock together. And he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to ascend the throne of God where God is sitting? Who is worthy to walk up onto the platform of God's throne and take the scroll out of the creator of the universe? Who's worthy? Well, that gets narrowed down pretty quick. I want you to notice that Moses doesn't step out of the shadows. He says, I'll do it. Elijah, Daniel, King David. Notice what happens. He says in verse 3, John records, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. There is nobody walking up on that throne. There is nobody walking up to God saying, hey, hand me the scroll, I'll read it. Because no one is worthy. Now I want you to notice how John responds to this because I think this is the intriguing moment for me what happens in chapters 4 and 5. I mean, all of this has been really intriguing. But John's response well, it demands that we take a look at it. He says in verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now, we, we, need to, we need to wrestle with why John is crying uncontrollably. I mean, think about this. John has been in the throne room of God in the Spirit, and he's seeing all this majesty and power and righteousness. He's seeing the very beauty of God and the angels and all these things. He is overwhelmed with worship. But in this moment, is this the time to be weeping uncontrollably? Is this the time to be crying as though there's no hope? 
It's as though, it's as though John in the spirit is filled with despair. So we have to ask the question, why is that? It's because when John looks at that scroll, he knows that that scroll not only is vitally important, but within that scroll is all the promises of God that are going to be fulfilled. Now think about John. John raised in the Old Testament. John taught the Old Testament, taught the prophets. He knows what the prophets have been saying, that he knew what they said about Messiah. So when Jesus came and John laid down his fishing nets and followed Jesus, he, he understood that this man must be Messiah. The fulfillment of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then he would walk with Jesus for three and a half years, hear all of the promises about the kingdom of God. He had a front row seat to everything that Jesus promised about the hereafter, about the heaven, about the kingdom. And so, so John was enthralled with what Jesus was teaching. And if you remember, there comes a point in time where there's an argument among the disciples about who's going to be the greatest. And John and his brother James, the sons of thunder, were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They were anticipating an earthly kingdom. Jesus says the king, them with roles inside that kingdom. I mean, it just made sense. We got 12 disciples. We had 12 tribes of Israel, right? We have 12 disciples. Jesus is Messiah. He's going to rule. We're going to get to rule with him. But who's going to be the number one and the number two and the number three? And John and James and Peter and others would have an argument about who that's going to be because they're expecting, they're expecting an earthly kingdom only to find out that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and die on a cross. And John would be the only one who would stay at the cross until Jesus' body was taken off the cross. Can you imagine the despair in that moment? Can you imagine the despair? In that moment when Jesus' lifeless body is taken off the cross, it's not only that Jesus died, it's all the promises died with him. Maybe he was just a good man. But do we really have any hope beyond this? Three days later, John and Peter would find themselves running to a tomb that they had heard was empty, and they get there and they find it empty. Jesus appears in the upper room and then hope is restored only for John to see Jesus ascend into the heavens just as he told them he would. And then they have the work of the New Testament church to do. And you know what he finds out? There's pain and hardship and difficulty and persecution. And John, at 90 years old on the Isle of Patmos, outlives them all. All of his friends have been martyred. All of them have been put to death. And he is on the island of Patmos starving to death and freezing to death on this barren island. And now he's in the throne room of God. And now he's crying, weeping. Why is that? It's because no one has been found worthy to take the scroll. And inside that scroll, John knows, is the fulfillment of all God's promises. So John has this expectation, has, has carried this expectation with him his whole life, ever since he started following Jesus, that all of the wrongs are going to be made right. That Domitian is going to bow the knee to my king. That all of this pain and suffering is going to be made right. And in the hand of God, John sees and recognizes that in the hand of God is how all of those promises are going to be fulfilled, yet there's no one worthy to read it. There's no one worthy to open it. There's no one who can unveil the plan of God. So John does what only John could do, and that was weep. Because he's brokenhearted over the reality of it. While he still trusts God, obviously he does, that apparently it's going to be a while and we're just going to have to wait 
because no one is found worthy. So while he's weeping, verse 5, one of the elders gets up from the 24 thrones, walks over to John and says to John, John, stop crying. Why should John stop crying? Because the elder directs his attention back to the throne. And at the throne, I don't know where Jesus was. I don't know why John hasn't mentioned Jesus. I don't know if Jesus was inside of that big ball of light and wasn't visible to John. But John looks up from his tears and through the tear-stained eyes, he looks through those tears and he sees somebody he knows. Somebody he walked with. Somebody that he's already had a vision of in chapter 1. He sees none other than Jesus. But notice how the elder describes him. The elder says, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah comes right out of Genesis 49 verse 9. It's the earliest kind of, 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 of description of the tribe of Judah being a lion's web that they're going to have the sun within out of the lion of, out of the tribe of Judah is going to be powerful like a lion, regal like a lion. A king will come out of Judah. But then he says, also notice he's the root of David. This comes out of Isaiah chapter 11 where Isaiah looks across the barren wasteland and he, and he has in his mind that the destruction of Israel and how that they have turned to idolatry looks like a, a forest that used to be grown with healthy trees has now been cut to the ground. It's just a barren wasteland. And all he sees is stumps as far as the eye can see. But there's this one stump that's got a little green shoot growing out of it. And Isaiah says, there will come a root of David. There will come a shoot from Jesse. In other words, there, there is going to be hope in the middle of all this destruction and all of this demolition and all of this hardship. There is still hope. And this elder says, John, stop crying. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What does he mean by that? Has conquered. Conquered what? He's conquered death, hell, the grave. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. The world and the universe is his footstool. He says he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Wait a minute, I thought we had a lion. The elder saw a lion. John sees the lamb. Now notice how he describes the lamb that he sees. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What's going on here? Well, first of all, you need to understand that what John is seeing is not a little woolly, small animal here. John is describing for us who Jesus, his identity, who he is. And when John sees him, and I would imagine that John is transported not only back in time at this moment, but he's also standing in the throne room of God, and he remembers the last moment he saw Jesus on earth before he was resurrected, his lifeless body being taken off of a cross. And here he looks up, and he sees a lamb. He sees the sacrificial lamb. The lamb, when it's mentioned anywhere in Scripture, immediately takes us to the sacrifice. And this lamb is bearing in its body the wounds of sacrifice, but notice this lamb is not laying next to the throne of God dead. This lamb is standing, and though it looks like it had been slain, it's very much alive. So on the one hand, we have a lamb that speaks of the sacrifice. We know that Jesus 
It was the Lamb of God sacrificed before the foundation of the world, that it was God's plan that Jesus be that Lamb, that perfect sacrifice. But not only that, we don't see him as weak, as hurt, as laying down and barely alive. No, we see him standing. And not only do we see him standing, we see him with seven horns. That speaks of military might, power, strength, seven eyes, which speaks of his omniscience. And we've seen this over and over again in the book of Revelation, how that Jesus knows all things, how that nothing is hidden in front of him. So why is it that the elder sees a lion and, Jesus, or and John sees a lamb? Why is that? Well, think of it this way. That elder who's already in heaven, who's already crossed from this life in the next, whoever that elder is, when he sees Jesus, he sees the conqueror. Why? Because what's next on Jesus' time frame here? What is the next thing Jesus is going to do? Well, he's going to take the church out, but then eventually he's going to conquer. So the elder sees Jesus as the conquering lion. But John, who's there in the spirit, he's not died yet. Well, he still sees him as a sacrificial lamb. Because John knows that when he crosses over, it's going to be because of the sacrificial lamb. And John John's life is not long for this earth. After this, he's not going to live much longer, and John knows that. So John sees a lamb. It's the greatest paradox in all human history. In all of human history, the centerpiece of all human history is Jesus Christ, Philippians 2, who Lord himself came to this earth as a bondservant, who, who dies on a, Ro a Roman cross, while the Jewish people and the Romans plot together and put him there, no crime committed, no sin committed. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, that Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us. How is it that Jesus is a conquering king, but yet he dies on a cross? How is it that we have both lion and lamb? Well, it's an incredible paragraph, a paradox. How is it? Is Jesus a lion or is he lamb? He's both. Completely. And fully, yes, he is a conquering king. Yes, he's going to come with power and authority. Yes, the next time he comes will not come in a manger in Bethlehem. It'll be with power and authority to reign with an iron scepter, the Bible says. But at the same time, this same king laid down his life. And while Satan celebrated, while the Pharisees gave some high fives to one another, while the Romans said, finally, this problem's taken care of, they thought he was defeated. But in that moment, Jesus was as victorious as he's ever been. In that moment, right then. So he is both lion, conquering king, and he is lamb, sacrificial, that provides for us an opportunity to be forgiven and made whole. Notice what else John experiences here. He says, and he went, verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now get this. Jesus walks right up to the creator of the universe. And at this point, all we have is carnelian. We have jasper light, clear light, red light. We have emerald color of rainbow around the throne. And we see a hand. And in that hand is a scroll. And Jesus walks right up to God, it just takes the scroll. So we went from no one being worthy to even touch the scroll, to even go after the scroll. Jesus just walks up. Notice how quick this is. He just went up, he takes the scroll out of the right hand when he was seated on the throne. How does Jesus do that? Because he's worthy. 
How, why is he worthy? Because he's the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Trinity, part of the Godhead Trinity. He has the authority, not just because he died, suffered, and resurrected. Certainly, he has conquered death. But he is worthy because of who he is. He is worthy because he is God. He is at one with the Father. He can walk right up to the Father and take the scroll out of the Father's hand. There's no conflict here. There's no problem here. Never doubt. Never doubt for a second that Jesus of the Bible is also God with flesh. I'll never doubt that for a moment. Even, if, even when the Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door and they're arguing that Jesus is not God, you take them right over here to Revelation 5. How in the world could a mere human being simply walk up to the throne of God and take a scroll out of the hand of God? No, you rest comfortably. You settle down. You settle down into the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ and don't you budge an inch because that's who he is. That's why he's worthy. He's worthy of your worship and your praise. And guess what happens next? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Those prayers that you prayed in desperation that you thought didn't get over the ceiling of your house. Guess what? God knows every word you've uttered. He's collected them. The Bible talks about how that our prayers are actually worship. It's almost like an incense that rises up before the nostrils of God, and it's a, it's a form of worship. It's a, it's a state of worship. The, the very moment we begin to pray, that very moment that we acknowledge that there's something greater than ourselves, that we are to surrender to him, that in, in fact is worship. God says, I've got every one of those prayers. Every one of them. Notice that the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down before the Lamb. What's happening in this moment? Well, they recognize the same thing that John knows. What John recognizes is that that scroll contains the plan of God, the fruition of God's plan, the kingdom of God, that it's all going to be rolled out and accomplished according to God's purposes. Then everybody stops and says, let's worship. Because again, all the wrongs are going to be made right. John is worshiping. The angels are worshiping. These beings are worshiping. Notice what they're saying. They're singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God. What does that mean? That Jesus' death on that cross was for me. The law of God that I had broken, and broken multiple times. The, the law of God that I was trying to keep because my mom and dad took me to church and I knew what heaven and hell was, I heard about it, but what I tried to do is what some of you are trying to do. You're trying to be the good person, and you're trying to earn God's marriage. You're trying to earn his favor. You're trying to earn that which has already been given. So you're trying by the law to be a good person, and hopefully you're hoping that everything's just going to work out. Well, the reality is that Jesus came and died and fulfilled the law, took all the wrath of God upon himself, and what he offers to you is a free gift that you receive by faith. But it's not by works. You'll never be good enough. Because what's God's standard? What's the law require? Absolute perfection. That didn't work out for me, and I dare say it's not working out for you. You need somebody to come in and live it for you. You need somebody to fulfill the law on your behalf. Well, guess what? Jesus did that. He did that, and he offers to you 
freedom. Notice what else. He says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So people all over the world, people who look different than you, speak different than you, live in places you've never even heard of, have heard the name of Jesus, have put their faith in him and have been transformed and ransomed. And one day we're all going to be gathered together, people from every tribe, every, that nation, that word nation, the Greek word is ethne. So it's not necessarily talking about border nations. It's talking about different ethnicities from all over the world are going to be gathered together and we're going to have the opportunity to worship together. He says, then I looked, verse 11, and I heard around the throne and living creatures, the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It may be at this point that you may be wondering, why, why do we have this vision? I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, uh, John, to write this down. Jesus told him to write it down. But why do we need this? No, notice what else he says. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Somebody from the second service, I said, I mean, for the first service, I said that there's going to be a moment where all creation worships the king of kings. I'm talking right here, it says all Creatures, every creature. I said in first service, whether that be a, a bear, a lion, or a gnat, they're all going to worship my king, every one of them. And he walked out, this guy in first service walked out, he said, do you mean there's going to be gnats in heaven? Man, I was really disappointed to hear that. <laughs> I'm like, y'all probably should have cleared that up. When it says in heaven, it means the atmosphere. Heaven can mean a lot of, can have three primary different uh, ideas. It can be the atmosphere, it can be the cosmos, or it can be the very throne room of God. So every created creature down on this world that we live is going to give worship to the king. Hmm. You know, Adam and Eve was meant to reign. As a matter of fact, God told Adam and Eve, here, I'm going to put you in this garden, and I want you to rule. I want you to to take and, and, and live in a relationship with me and I'm, I'm going to let you rule and I'm going to give you responsibility and I want you to take the creation that I've placed you in and I want you, to, I want you to do right by it. We don't know how long that worked out, but it wasn't long before a serpent came into the garden and said to, to Eve, hey, you know that the God who placed you, you know you can't be, really be trusted. That's not actually what he said, but in actuality that's what he said. Did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? And so we know that Adam and Eve dropped the ball, made a mess of things. You know what happened, right? They were removed out of the garden, and they were exiled. God calls a nation out of, out of Abraham. He sets Abraham apart. He says, I'm going to show you a land that I will, I will give you a land. I'll show it to you. So Abraham ups and leaves takes his family and they leave and don't even know where they're going, but God says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a big old bunch of offspring, as many as the stars of the sky, and you're going to be my people who follow me by faith, and, and I'm going to give you this land, and, and you're going to be my representatives. You're going, to, you're going to rule the earth. You're going to point other people to me. Well, how did that work? Well, eventually, these very same people who God had called out and set apart to himself, those very same people replaced God with another God. And they do it over and over and over again. You know what God did? He exiled them. 
He said, I'm taking you out of the land. And he did exactly that. And in all of that, all down through space and time, all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way up to where we are today, we have despair and brokenness. We, we have this separation between us and God, and in that separation, we have death and despair and broken heart and, and, and hardship that you have to go through. And when we talk about despair, what is, what is despair? Well, it's, it's the expectations we have for life. You expect, you know, I want to get a good job, I want to you know, have a good family, all those expectations that you have. But then you also have reality. And the difference between reality and expectations, guess what happens in here? Oftentimes, despair. Because things don't always work out the way we think they ought to work out. A few months ago, I did a funeral. And this family that, that I was doing this funeral for, uh, they're not connected to our church. It was just through an, a ministry opportunity that was put in front of me. The family was in need, and, and we're a church that serves people in need. We're going to do that, and I'm going to do that. And this family was in need. And this family, I met them for the very first time through these circumstances. And this young couple was going to adopt a little girl. Uh, they'd been in foster care, and were going to adopt. And man, they were just thrilled, and a beautiful, beautiful little girl, and this little girl at five months old passed away and they needed somewhere to have the funeral. So I agreed to do the funeral. I had never done a funeral of someone so young. I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of different circumstances, as you know, but this one was different. And I thought, I thought I was prepared for this. I thought, okay, I, you know, yes, it's a very hard situation working with the family and hearing their story and their Christ followers and just all that, happened, um, just an incredible, incredible story. And this, this couple was deeply in love with this little girl. But folks, I'm here to tell you, I was not prepared when I walked into this room and I saw that casket down here. You see, because in that moment, everything that I'm seeing with my eyes makes no sense, right? A little five-month-old that should have had all of her life ahead of her, but yet... I'm standing in a room with a family who's absolutely brokenhearted, and I'm looking at this scene, and I cannot get past it. I, I had kind of this internal thing going on, and you know, as, a, as we're serving people, and this, this, this applies to you as well, when you're serving a family in need, you put your needs aside, and you serve in the moment. You do what you need to do in the moment, and then later on, you can unpack that stuff, right? You've done that before. You've had brokenness in your family where you had to take care of your family. You had to step forward and do what you need to do, and in that moment, you put all that stuff aside, and folks, I've been doing that for years and trying to do that for years because in that moment, what matters is me serving you, but in that moment, everything that my eyes was telling me was despair. I, I got through it, was able to serve the family, but there were several nights after that I couldn't sleep because I could not get this imagery out of my head. And finally, finally, I just had to get in the Word. I had to just get along with God. And I had to let God speak to my heart about this. And it, and, it, and it comes back to what's happening in this throne room. That what happened, what I saw with this family and the hurt and the pain that they went through, what I saw is the result of a broken, sin-cursed world. A, a world where God had intended 
for us to walk in fellowship with him that because of our own greed and pride and arrogance going all the way back to the garden, God had told them exactly what was going to happen if they decided they were going to be gods themselves. And God always keeps his promises. So as I'm standing in this room and I'm looking at this situation, God is reminding me, you live in a sin-cursed world, but I also need to remind you, son of mine, that this is not the final say about where this world is heading. I needed to hear that. I needed to know that. And this throne room, this throne room reminds me that no funeral I've ever done is the final word, ever. I had a good friend pass away this week. A good friend. A friend of y'all's. Or they had used. Faithful, faithful guy of this church. Hadn't been able to come in a long time because of his sickness. But I remember being over in the gym with, with basketball, and he's over there with a walker coaching a basketball team in pain, not feeling good, but yet faithful to what God had called him to do. And I want you to know he's a good friend of mine. And the only way that I can make sense of all the suffering that he went through is because of the throne room of God where God holds in his hand, gives to Jesus the scroll and says, don't you worry, John, everything I promised you is going to be fulfilled. Just as I said, all the wrongs are going to be made right. So why do we need this throne room? Well, first of all, we need an anchor for hope. We need to anchor our life in something that can provide hope. And I would dare say you've anchored your life to something that maybe you're finding out now will never provide you hope. Maybe it's climbing some imaginary corporate ladder. Maybe it's a title that you're clinging to. Maybe it's another human being. You know, when I counsel with couples and they're getting ready to get married, when I hear this from the couple or one of, the, one of the people who are getting ready to get married, when I hear this statement, I sigh. I'll hear this. Well, I'll ask the question, why are y'all getting married? Why, why, do you, why is now the right time to get married? And one of the other person will say, because she or he fulfills me. Well, that sounds lovely, but let's talk about this in two years after the wedding day. Because I'm here, I'm your friend, and I'm your pastor, and I'm here to give you a dose of reality. That's what premarital counseling is, by the way. It's just a dose of reality. Anybody who sat through that, can I get an amen? amen? See, they've been there. If your life, if you're seeking fulfillment in another human being, can we all just agree that eventually you're going to be in despair? First of all, that's too much to require of that person. But second... If we're anchoring our life to anything other than what we see in this throne room, the Godhead Trinity, God the Father on the throne in power and in control, Jesus who is now taking the reins of history and is going to play out God's plan just as God has written it down, that all the wrongs are going to be made right, all the prayers that you've prayed are going to find fulfillment. If you didn't see it in your lifetime, if you never see it in your lifetime, those prayers will be fulfilled in this kingdom that Jesus is going to make sure it comes to full fruition. If your hope is not anchored there, can I just tell you that you are headed for despair? Martin Luther King said this. He said, quote, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Did you get that? I may be standing in a funeral with a casket in front of me, and in that moment, the pain of that moment, the hardship of that moment, the disappointment of that moment is real and is tangible, and you can feel it. You can cut it like a knife. 
But if that's all I have, then we are people most miserable. Martin Luther King says, we must never lose hope in the infinite. That's the throne room. What John is seeing, the scroll being handed to Jesus, John's weeping, turning to worship. How do we move from weeping to worship? It's where you put your hope. So we need something to anchor us because this world is broken. Second, we need this throne room. We need this imagery. We need this vision because it's going to give us anticipation of a greater future. The only way that I can walk out of a hospital after talking with a family whose family member has days to live, the only way that I can talk with a couple who's got marital problems and it's bad and it's rough, the only way that I can walk out of that room and still have hope is because my anchor is in something real, not something that is constantly changing in this world. And it gives me anticipation for a better future that I know no matter what I have to face in this earth, no matter what I have to face in ministry, that God is going to bring all things to completion just as he promised he would. Maybe when you were growing up or maybe now as you're reading stories to your kids, you read the story and at the end it says this, they lived happily ever after. And you know, you got maybe the little picture there of the the prince and the princess walking into the castle with the drawbridge coming up, you know? Happily ever after. Everybody is seeking after their happy ever after. They're looking for the happiness and the money. Uh, they're looking for happiness in their 401k. How's that going for you right now in your investments? Leaving a little bit to be desired, right? This happily ever after, is, is this a fable? Is this like some story that was written and, and the idea is that you find the right person, you get the right castle, you get all the right things lined up in your life and you can finally live happily ever after? A whole lot of people are pursuing that track. A whole lot of people are. But what if this happily ever after actually does exist? Uh, my friend Ed Yost, he's happily ever after right now. I've got a whole lot of friends and loved ones who are in their happy ever after right now. One day I will enter that place happy ever after. But between now and then, between my expectations and reality, if I'm not careful, despair is going to slide in there. And one of the ways to protect me from despair is the anticipation that one day what John saw, I will see. That what John experienced, I will experience. What John saw with his very eyes is what I will see. And all of those who've gone before me will be reunited. For every disciple of Christ, there is a happy ever after. And then finally, the reason we need chapter 4 and chapter 5 not only an anchor for our hope and anticipation of a greater future, but the third, and I think this is huge, you need to choose the day whom you're going to serve. Isn't it about time you quit running after that thing that's never going to bring happiness in your life or joy? Isn't it about time that you finally admit, maybe for the first time in your life, that the carrot you've been running after, the one that's been dangled in front of you, whether it be money or fame or power or status or a person, has left you empty every time? Isn't it about time to put your faith in something real, something that will change your life, something that will give you purpose and meaning. 
The world's always going to have something to fill in that blank with. They're always going to tell you, pursue this. Oftentimes when they tell you that, they stand to make money from you. I'll just say it. Isn't it about time to quit listening to the failed world tell me how to find joy and peace? They've not found it. What makes you think you're going to find it? In the pathway that they put in front of you. Choose the day who you're going to serve. Choose the day who you're going to worship. Choose the day where you're going to look for hope. Because I dare say that everyone in this room is looking for hope, but you may be looking for it in all the wrong places. And despair is creeping in. That difference between your expectations and reality right in here. You either have hope or you have despair. Which is it? And whatever you have, whatever is consuming your life, I'm pretty confident you can track it back to where you actually have your faith. This throne room that, that Jesus has pulled the veil back on has as its purpose and goal not only to provide hope, but to prepare us for what comes next. I don't know what's coming next in your life. I don't know what's coming next in mine. I don't have the future. I don't, I don't have a scroll somewhere telling me exactly how it's all going to play out. But I do know this, that whatever's around the corner, whatever I can't see that's ahead, I don't have to worry and fret about that. Because the one who holds the scroll in his right hand, the one who took the scroll out of God's right hand and is going to fulfill all of this, says to me, I've got you in the palm of my hand. And nothing shall I pluck you out. Is that, is that your testimony? Is that where your faith and trust is? Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity and the beauty of your word. And we thank you, Father, for just the conviction that it brings. Father, we're thankful that this plan that you have will come to full and complete fruition. So, Father, what we ask for in this moment is that we truly worship you. In this moment, we pray, Father, that we would truly honor you. And, Father, that may be that for the first time in our life we put our faith in you, that we forsake all others and only trust you. Father, I believe there are people desperately seeking for hope. May they find it this morning in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.org.